of scripture this morning is from the book of James, James chapter 5. As we've been going through this series of how Christians wait. James is after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. Very last page of James. James chapter 5, and we'll read verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have had a a year where we've been called to be patient. And it would seem as if it would have been more appropriate that this would be our text, January 1st, 2020. Um, But here we are, realizing now over the past year how faithful you've been, how good you've been. And you've given us this text right when we need it. So I pray, Lord, that as we listen to you this morning, that we would hear from you. Let your spirit speak through the word. Lord, move me out of the way. Take my personality and and my opinions out of this pulpit and put your word here, speaking to your church so that we may hear from you and be built up by you and be prepared for the waiting that you've called us to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the ideas that, that we as a church, as, as your pastors have been focusing on this Advent season, is that as Christians, we are exhorted by God's word to live in the in-between, as we call it. The already and the not yet. We live between Christ's resurrection, which is our freedom, and his return, which is our resurrection. Because of his death and resurrection, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're made holy and we are freed to be holy. And on the forward-looking end of things, because Christ will return, we live in hope. We live in hope of, of what he holds in store for us. Our hope, as we saw last week, is set fully, set fully on the grace that will be brought at Christ's return. And friends, that is the Christian life. We, we are positioned between these two realities of Christ's resurrection and ascension and his return. And faith is understanding that. 
Living in faith is living in the darkness of a broken world and walking by the light of Christ's resurrection and his return. As Christians, we are, because of the Holy Spirit in us, the only people in the entire world who can see those lights. And that's why in the book of James, James is so hard on those who claim to have that faith, but there's no evidence, there's no works. He says they have a dead faith. Faith isn't just saying Christ died and rose again and will return. Faith isn't a verbal statement. Faith isn't a prayer. Faith is living. Faith is living, or as the Bible so often teaches, walking in light of Christ's death and resurrection and imminent return. Real faith, saving faith, is lived out faith. And as you read the book of James, you you find that, that principle from start to finish. The entire book is about what that faith looks like. Over and over again, James showed us and shows us that we are defined as as a people. We are defined by Christ's death and resurrection and the hope that we have in his return. That's who we are. That's how we're to live. And he shows us throughout the book what that life looks like. Well, here's the question that we're going to see answered in our text this morning, though. Kind of in, if we could summarize all of the book of James, if we, could, if we could take this Christian life and wrap it up into the, the attitude that we are to have as we wait, how would you describe it? How do we live in light of Christmas, Christmas but before the return of Christ? Well, in a word, as we see in our text, patiently. We see it right there at the beginning, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the context of this passage is in the midst of suffering. The Christians James is writing to have left, or to put it more accurately, they've been driven out of Jerusalem and into poverty because of their faith. They've lost everything they have. They've been driven out of their home because of their faith. And at the beginning of the book, James addresses these people as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. They've been dispersed. They're living out most likely in the rural areas of Judea, and they're working as day laborers. Those that don't, aren't independently wealthy have to work because they don't have land. They work on someone else's land, and they work as day laborers for these wealthy landowners. And at the beginning of chapter 5, which we didn't read, but which you can do on your own, James pronounces these woes against some of these wealthy landowners because they're taking advantage of these Christians. They're They're not paying them for their work. James's exhortation is that justice is coming. The unrighteous employers believe Somehow that not paying their workers means that they're saving that money for themselves. But what James teaches is they're actually saving up wrath for themselves. But the Christians being taken advantage of are the focus of our text this morning. This letter has been written to them. These Christians who are being defrauded and are 
and are powerless to do anything about it, what are they supposed to do while they wait for God's justice to come to these people who are defrauding them? What do they do? They organize a union and, and strike? Do they, do they lead a revolt? That's not what the text teaches. Instead, James says to them, be patient. Patient? Patient for what? Patient for the coming of the Lord. Their hope in the return of Christ is to be so great that it far outweighs their suffering. And now, not many of us are in that exact same situation. And, and the reason why not many of us are in that exact same situation as those Christians is because of the influence of Christian ethics in Western civilization. We understand that it is good and just and right to pay your workers fairly because our Western civilization has is, is grown from this ethic. But that doesn't change the fact that most of us are enduring difficult circumstances that we have zero power to change. Maybe we're not being defrauded by our employer, but maybe we're grieving the loss of a loved one. And it's a grief that never seems to go away. Maybe, maybe we're grieving, maybe we're suffering because an adult child whose life choices never seem to take the right turn, lead us to constant sorrow. You know there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe it's the difficulties of caring for aging parents and the knowledge that that difficulty won't be over until they die, but you don't want them to die. Maybe you're enduring life with a disability. And you know that that disability or that chronic pain or whatever it is will always be with you in this life. Some of you are caring for people who are mentally ill and their suffering brings suffering into your life. And it feels like that will never end. For some of you, someone else's sin decades ago has brought about consequences into your life that just seem to hang around like a, a rotten stench and every day you're reminded of what they did. Whatever it is, all of us have areas of our lives that we would like to see changed, but we're powerless to change. And whatever those circumstances are, they bring suffering, real suffering. But listen this morning, that suffering that you're enduring is how you identify with these Christians that James is writing to. It's what connects you. And the Holy Spirit's instruction to you and me is the same as it is to the Christians that James is writing to. Be patient. Be patient. Well, how do you mean, James? What do you mean, James? Be patient. Just wait? Like we're in a waiting room of a hospital? No. Not like that. There's uncertainty in the hospital. We're not anxiously waiting on uncertain news. James says we're to be patient like a farmer waiting for the crops to mature. Look at verse 7. See 
how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives early and the late rains. The early rains at planting time sprouted the seeds, and the rains later, the late rains in the season, brought more growth. And James and his hearers understood that God brought those rains, and he brought them every single year. Those rains were steady, and they were predictable, and they were necessary. They were like our Santa Ana winds or our May gray. You could set your calendar by those events. And all all of that waiting that the farmer does is necessary. It's a part of the process of farming. The plants that he's planted are all undergoing a transformation process from seed to harvest. Every stage of growth is building and strengthening the plant for the harvest, what James calls that precious fruit. If the farmer, think about this, if the farmer gets anxious and he says, you know what, I want my harvest now, before the early rains have even come. And he goes out and he harvests his field of freshly planted seeds. What does he get? He gets worthless half-sprouted seeds. If the farmer tries to bring in the harvest in the middle of the season when the plants are you know, knee-high, what does he get then? He gets tall grass. It's worthless. He's got to wait until the end to obtain the prize, doesn't he? His hope, all of his work in the fields, all that he's planning for, his daily routine, sun up to sundown, it's all anticipating the harvest at the end. The end is what defines who the farmer is. It's what his survival depends on. The harvest he's looking forward to makes that that, that excruciating work of plowing the fields worthwhile. It makes the work of planting the seed worth it. It makes the work of hot days, pulling weeds worthwhile. When the farmer's up at night and he's keeping the deer and the antelope from, from destroying his crop, why does he do that? Because he's anticipating the harvest. He's looking forward to the harvest. He's waiting for the harvest. The harvest is all this guy has to look forward to. It means absolutely everything to him. Josh showed us last week from 1 Peter that our hope is to be set fully on the grace that is to be brought at Christ's return. Remember that? Fully. He emphasized that. Same thing with this farmer. His life depends fully, totally, 100% on that harvest. So he patiently waits for it because of the joy of the harvest set before him. He endures whatever he's got to endure in order to make it to that day. And and put it this way, the more, there's there's a proportionality here that you need to see. The more his life depends on that harvest, the more patient he'll be as he waits. So let's bring that to us. What does that mean for us? Well, listen, the more you're looking forward to Christ's return, the more patient you will be in your circumstances. That's what James is teaching this year. The more anticipation you have, the more eagerly you await the return of Christ, the more you'll put up with while you wait. 
In verse 8, James encourages his readers, like the farmer, be patient. And then he gives this interesting command. Look at verse 8. Establish your hearts. You see that? Establish your hearts. Some of your translations say, strengthen your hearts. Some of them say, stand firm. And that's sort of, that's kind of Christianese language, isn't it? We don't, we don't use this language a lot. So let's, let's kind of get a picture of what he's talking about. Think of setting a corner fence post. And if you've never done that before, come to my house and you can help me set a corner fence post because I've got some fence to build. But when you're building a chain link or a woven wire fence or a barbed wire fence, the corner post has got to be very, very strong. It's got to be the strongest. The entire fence depends on the strength of the corner post. So the deeper you set the post and the more stone you use and the more concrete you surround that post with, the more firmly you can establish the post. And the more firmly established the post is, the tighter you can pull the fence and the stronger the entire, the, the, the entire structure will be. In a similar way, verses 7 and 8 are saying this, our hearts have got to be deeply, firmly established in this promise Christ is coming back. So if your heart, and by your heart, that's Christian language for that bit of you that drives your entire life, if your heart isn't firmly established in the promise of Christ's return, then when you put any tension on it at all, when life begins to pull you down from two different directions, the post snaps like a twig, or it's rooted up out of the ground, and the whole fence comes crashing down. Your faith collapses. And so what we're seeing here is that we are to establish our hearts, not in our own goodness, not in our own abilities to obey God's commands. Establish our hearts, not in our happiness, not in our families, not in our finances. Establish your hearts in the promise of Christ's return. That's the only firm foundation. Our hearts must be firmly set in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises or our faith will absolutely fail. James adds to this command, this encouragement. Look again at this verse, verse eight. The coming of the Lord is at hand, he says. You also be patient, establish your hearts in the coming of the Lord, as he says in verse 7. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So in order to endure this life and remain in the faith, our hearts, our identity, who we are, has to be deeply, firmly established in the reality of Christ's return, and that return is at hand. So what does that mean, at hand? That at-handedness, whatever it is, the nearness of Christ's return, is meant to be this bright spot of encouragement for these Christians. So we want to know what that means, don't we? And there's a right way to understand this, and there's a wrong way to understand this. And I will give you the wrong way first. The wrong way to understand this at-handedness of Christ's return is to, to think of this analogy. We're, we're in the car, we're on a very long road trip, and someone feels the call of nature. And so you tell them, we're almost there. 
Just hold it a little longer. Just a few more minutes. That promise of nearness that you're giving that person has a sense of timing behind it, doesn't it? And the promised shortness of the timing is supposed to help the person in the back seat with their legs crossed and the grimace on their face. It's, it's supposed to help them make it to the end. And you could understand James that way, but to understand James that way is to say that the nearness in time of Christ's return is what helps us while we wait. It's any day now. You only need to be patient a little while longer because the coming of the Lord is soon. Here's the problem with that. How in the world is the soonness supposed to help you if you're sitting in traffic and the truth is you're actually six hours away from the nearest stop? That's just cruel, isn't it? Any parent can tell you, you're going to have a mess to deal with. And whoever had the bright idea of lying about the soonness to the next stop is going to be the one cleaning up the back seat. Everybody suffers. So let's take this back to the Bible. If Jesus ascended into heaven somewhere around 33 AD, and we know he did, well, it's now been 1,987 years, and the clock is still ticking. And... To interpret this sense of nearness or at-handedness in a purely temporal way makes it seem like the Holy Spirit who wrote this was either ignorant or was lying just to get these people to make it through their time of trouble. I don't think that's a helpful way or the right way to read this passage. And we don't often do this at Del Cerro, but this is a place where I believe a word study would be helpful. Okay? So, so think, we're going we're gonna to really zoom in on that word at hand, and we're going to see where else it's used in Scripture. In, in the original language, when James says the coming of the Lord is at hand, he's using the same word, same idea that Jesus used when he said the kingdom is at hand, and we saw that in Mark, and we saw that in Matthew. It's the same word that the writer to the Hebrews uses when he says in Hebrews 10, not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Same word, and get so, drawing near, at hand. Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Paul uses it in Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. See, the idea in each of these passages is, is not any minute now. The idea of being translated doesn't have this specific sense of timing to it. Instead, think of this in more of an effectual sense. So think of it like the closer a magnet gets to iron, the stronger the pull. Already the magnet is close enough to have a noticeable effect. You could feel the pull. Or think of it in terms of light, in terms of sun. At dawn, a little while before the sun comes up, you can see 
the effects. Already, before you can see the sun, you can see the effects of the sun. Already, the light is having its effect on the world. The sky goes from a a blackish to more of a grayish-bluish. The stars start to disappear. You can see the outline of objects in front of you that you couldn't see in the dark of night. And because of those effects, you know the sun is at hand. For the New Testament writers, the return of Christ is such an enormous event that they they use this idea of at-handedness to describe it. Think about how big it will be. The entire world will be judged. The returning king will destroy death, the final enemy. A new heavens and a new earth will be ushered in. This is the final event. Because this is such a massive approaching event, its its gravitational pull is already being felt. Or to mix metaphors, its light is already being cast over the earth. The effects of Christ's imminent return have already begun. Already many of us who are in this room have been born again into that new creation reality. Already we've been empowered by the Spirit to walk in the light of that new reality. The sun is rising. It is at hand. And friends, this sort of nearness, this effectual nearness, is what gives us reason to wait patiently. That's the grounding of our waiting. But the inverse is also true. And James wants to make sure we're clear about this. When we are not anticipating Christ's return, we cannot wait patiently. And we, when, when we don't wait patiently, we see that lack of patience is expressed in all sorts of ways. In verse 9, one of the ways that James says our lack of hoping Our lack of patience is expressed is in how we treat others. Look at verse 9. Are you grumbling about other people? Do you grumble about other people? Other Christians, no less? So, by grumbling, I mean when you think about such and such a person and you feel like they're not pulling their weight or they're not trying as hard as you think they should or they're struggling or they're annoying or they're, they're wrestling with some sin that you conquered years ago and you see them or you hear them start to talk and the first thing that comes across your mind is some murmur, some grumble. Friends, James is telling us here why that's happening. Why do we grumble against one another? Because we don't really believe that Christ's return is imminent. Rather than hoping in Christ's return, our hope, when we grumble, it's exposing this reality. Our hope is being placed in the here and now. And that's a hope that will constantly fail us. And so we grumble. James's language is echoing us back to Israel's grumbling. That's why he uses that word. In the book of Numbers, we see this. The Israelites have already been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. 
They've already been brought through the Red Sea. They've already experienced God's provision of, of daily bread. They've already drank water from the rock. They have all they need. They've always had all they need. And they're sojourning. They're, they're on their way towards the promise of rest and unimaginable provision that God has set out in front of them. It's their hope. And in Numbers chapter 13, they're right at the cusp of it. They can smell the honey in the land of milk and honey. And already they're sending scouts in to check out the land. And in many ways, God's people are about to return to the Garden of Eden. God's promise of his presence with them is at hand. And the scouts come back. And they report back that this land truly is as wonderful as God promised. But there's a problem. The enemy seems too great to conquer. And so losing faith and hope, the people begin to grumble. And their grumbling isn't against the enemy. It's against their own leaders. They grumble against Moses, and they grumble against Aaron, and they grumble against God. And they say they're going to find new leaders who will take them back to slavery in Egypt because that was better. They had forgotten about the experience of God's past redemption and they're doubting God's promise of faithfulness in front of them. And all they can think of is, right now I'm afraid and right now I don't like this. The result, the result of what the scouts report about the land that they're about to take isn't, isn't a deeper, more established hope in God's faithfulness. In his faithfulness to his promises, they don't lean back on what God has accomplished already. They just grumble. And they complain. And then they're judged, aren't they? They lose their inheritance. They miss out on the promise. And so, what James is doing here is he's warning Christians who are tempted, are tempted to grumble against one another. He's saying to us, that judge who judged Israel, he's standing at our door. He is nearby. He is at hand. And the nearness of his coming is to have that effect of faithfulness on you now. The reality of Christ's return is to so affect us that we'll realize we need one another. Christ has provided us with one another, not to be punching bags, not to be people to gossip about or to murmur about so we feel better about ourselves. No, Christ has given us one another to encourage one another, to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another, to build one another up, and, and most of all, to remind one another that we have a reason to endure hardship, a good reason. He's given us one another to point one another to God's faithfulness in the past and to proclaim to one another his promises in the future. And so through that, we help one another make it to the end. To grumble while we wait is to despise the very gift that God has given us to help us while we wait. 
Grumbling is a sign of faithlessness. It's a sign of unbelief. It's a sign that our faith and hope are not truly in Christ. And that's why the warning is there. The judge is at the door. If we really believe that, if we were truly affected by Christ's nearness, we wouldn't grumble. We couldn't. To go back to the farmer analogy, that's like grumbling because the sun is shining on our crops. It's like grumbling because the rains are falling. God has given the farmer these gifts, the rains and the sun that bring growth to his crops. These gifts are supposed to give him greater confidence, greater endurance while he waits, not less. If we would realize how good he's been to us, even now while we wait, if we'd see one another, members of the church, as cherished gifts of the Spirit to help us persevere in the faith. We wouldn't grumble. We would be thankful. God has given us one another to help us be patient, church. So again, the exhortation from James is be patient. Be established in the nearness of Christ's return. Well, from here, James gives us another example. We've seen the farmer. We've seen the negative example of Israel. The next example is, is rather than being like unfaithful and impatient Israel, grumbling in the wilderness, James points us to faithful Israel. Well, who is faithful Israel? The prophets. So we are to be patient like the prophets. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets trusted in God's promises. In fact, they were the ones who received the word of God. They received the promises and spoke those promises to the rest of, the, uh, of Israel. That's why James says they spoke in the name of the Lord. That's what he's getting at here. The prophets endured hardship because they heard from God. And their faith was more assured in what was ahead because they heard from God. Think of the prophets. Think of our Wednesday night study in Daniel over these past few months. How many times did we see Daniel trusting God despite the difficulty he was enduring? Think of Moses. Think of Elijah and Isaiah. All of them were recognizing what God had already done and looking forward to what he promised ahead. And so their entire lives were marked by that faith and hope. And here's the thing. Here's what they were looking forward to. Here's what they were looking ahead to. They were looking ahead to the arrival of Messiah. Friends, we already have Messiah. That's what James is hinting at here. The prophets received the word of the Lord and spoke about the coming of Christ and their lives were profoundly affected by that. They were able to wait patiently as they endured opposition. How much more for us? We have the word of God. We have the Christ who has come. He has been given to us now already. What the prophets longed for, we have. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us. He spoke to the prophets. He has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things 
through whom he also created the world. 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown, this is Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Saw that last week. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's what we've been given. Friends, we have every reason to be steadfast as we await Christ's return. Our faith isn't irrational, wishful thinking. Our faith is firmly established in what Christ has already accomplished, and our hope is in what he will accomplish. Well, that last example that we're given is Job. Look at verse 11. You have the farmer, the prophets, and Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What's James saying? He says, there's reward in perseverance. And Job is our example of this. If you don't know the story of Job, let me try and give you the nutshell, quick version. So, beginning of Job, Satan is wandering the earth. He comes up to God. He challenges God and basically says the only reason that anyone follows God is that they've received all wealth from him. They've received material blessings from him. God says, no, here, test Job. See if that's the case. Job is this really wealthy guy with a huge estate. He's got tons of workers to help him on his land. He's got tons of flocks. He's got grown kids who are uh, who love him and they're faithful to him. He's got a great reputation in town. And he's righteous. And he trusts in the Lord. Well, Satan takes everything from him. And I mean everything. He takes his kids. He takes his home. He takes his possessions. He takes his health. He takes his crops. He takes his animals. He takes his reputation. And all of that is gone in a matter of days. And that's the intro to the book. That's what's going on behind the scenes, the, the dramatic irony that no one else can see, that the, that the humans can't see. And in the rest of the book, for like 38 chapters, we see this back and forth between Job and his three friends, and they're all speculating as to what took place. Why did this happen to Job? And mostly the friends accuse Job of having done something wrong. And throughout the story, Job defends himself because he knows he's been faithful to God. He knows he's trusting God. But he's, he's also grieving what's occurred. And he's praying these, these deep, questioning, I think you could even say angry, please, these prayers with God. But all the while, Job is confident. He's confident, even in his questioning, even in his grieving, he's confident that God is faithful and that he's true. Job, throughout, throughout the trials, remains steadfast in his faith. The prophets, in verse 10, that James showed us, had heard from the Lord, and so they remained steadfast. That's not what happened with Job. Job did not get a word from the Lord. He had no clue what was going on. He just had everything taken from him and then years of silence from God. And even without any promises from God, without any reason to hope in the future, he remained steadfast. Do you know why? 
Here's James's point. Job was trusting in God's character. Job trusted that because God is God, then whatever God ordains is right. And Job trusted that even when he didn't know what God would ordain. Job says at one point, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He didn't even know if he was going to survive this. But he, he was assured that he would trust in God because he was trusting in God's character. Job didn't know that God had forbidden Satan from taking his life. And he also didn't know that God had allowed Satan to take everything else. He had no idea what was going on. But what he did know was that God was to be trusted because God is holy and he is righteous and he is just. And so he remained steadfast. Friends, we have more than that, don't we? We have been given a promise that Job was never given. We have been given the Holy Spirit. Job didn't have that. On top of that, because of Christmas, because of, we, because of what we know about Jesus, we know even more about the character of God. We know that Jesus is to us the very incarnation of the love of God. He is the grace of God. He is the mercy of God. He is the comfort of God. And we know that he will never abandon us. Job had none of that. So if Job could endure his trials based solely on what little he knew about the character of God, how much more can we endure ours? That's the point here. We, we have been given Christ, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have been given forgiveness in Christ, assuring us that even in our, when we have these unknown sins, we know that they're covered by the cross. We've been given the love of God in Christ, and we can be confident that there is no condemnation coming our way because of Christ. We have been given adoption through Christ, and so we are God's children. And friends, we have the promise of Christ's return and the promise of eternity with him. Job had none of that. He had this one little bit of knowledge. God is sovereign, and God is just. And that was enough. That was enough for him to remain steadfast. And he was rewarded for his steadfastness. The end of verse 11 teaches us what God's purpose is in Job. It's interesting that really in order to understand Job, you've got to read James. James is teaching us here that the, the purpose of Job's suffering the reason why the book of Job is in the Bible so that we could read about it is not so that God could prove to Satan Job's righteousness. That's not the point of the book of Job. God's purpose was to reveal his own compassion and mercy. You see that in verse 11? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of the book of Job, God revealed his mercy. He forgave Job's friends who had slandered God's character. He forgave Job for his complaints against God, and he rewarded Job. He did that by more than doubling all that Satan had taken from him. What is justice? Justice is just giving back what was taken. 
Mercy is giving double what was taken. But how much more do we have to look forward to? In Christ, we have seen the mercy of God. In Christ, we have seen the compassion of God. In Christ, we will receive our reward from him. Because of the mercy and compassion of God toward us, we have been promised the inheritance that belongs to the Son of God, the King of all creation. We have a greater reason for steadfastness than Job did. We have a greater reason for patience than the prophets did. We have a greater reason for hope than the farmer does, waiting for a crop. Brothers and sisters, we have Jesus Christ. If you can't, you can't claim Christ as your own this morning, friend, all, all of what we've seen in this passage, in any reason to hope in the future is not a hope that you have. When difficulty comes, and it will come, your only hope will be in this life, in yourself, in your family, your friends, your job, whatever it is. And I can promise you, each one of those things will let you down. You will let yourself down. The only thing in store for you if you do not have the hope of Christ is despair. So friend, hope in Christ. He is the evidence of God's faithfulness in the past. In trusting him, you will begin to see his faithfulness to you in the future. He's the only one who gives you a foundation for this life and a reason to look forward to the next. There are some of you, though, who hear these things, and you know they're true. You hear this, and you yeah, I know, I'm kind of hoping in Christ. I want to. I just don't, I can't. I can't establish myself in the hope of Christ's return. I can't anchor myself deep enough in God's faithfulness. And my faith is constantly shaken. Though it's a command from James for us to do this, I want you to see this encouragement from 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. He will establish your heart. God is ultimately the one who establishes your heart. Or hear this from 1 Peter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, in other words, the one who is pointing you to trust in the return of Christ, the one who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore you. He will confirm you and strengthen and establish you. God has saved you in Christ. He has established you in Christ. If you are weak this morning, and some of you are weak, many of us are weak, be patient. He will restore you. God will confirm you. He will strengthen you. You can trust in the Lord. You can be confident in him because you've been given Christ.